0: you do have your Bibles, why don't you turn with me to Jonah chapter 3, which we'll be reading from this morning. Last week, Dave uh, looked at chapter 2 and really a fantastic message with the heart of the message being that salvation belongs to God, that He is the one alone that saves. This week, we're going to be looking at this, the power of contained within these pages, the power of God's word. James Montgomery Boyce uh, describes chapter 3 of Jonah as the greatest revival in all of history. So I'm going to read uh, from Jonah chapter 3 and um, then I'm going to pray because I need God's help this morning. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, "'Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, "'and call out against it the message that I tell you.' So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city." three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, that neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we we come before you in your word. A powerful word a word that is your very words, the words of our God. Lord, this morning we acknowledge that often we find it hard to trust you and your word. And so, Lord, this morning we ask not that we would hear the voice of a preacher or of any other person, Lord, but we want to hear from you. We want to hear your word to us this morning. We want to hear it and we want to be changed by it, Lord. So we pray, send your spirit this morning amongst us to hear this, your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to talking to people about Jesus there's certain people that we have a tendency to, well, if you're anything like me, to, to write off, to kind of say, there's just no way. You know, at my work, uh, one of my colleagues is a gay man. He's been with his partner for 17 years. And he's a really friendly, lovely guy. He lives a good life, he's well off. They have a uh, beautiful home in the city. They travel frequently throughout the year. Life for him seems really good. And you can begin to think, there's just no way he could ever come to know Christ. There's other people. I mean, I work in a, a hospital in a city and there's kind of in hospital a food chain, you know. There's the top very top of the food chain, and then there's the very bottom of the food chain where, like, physios and nurses and things live right down the bottom where I live. And at the very top of the hospital food chain is the orthopaedic surgeons... You know, these guys walk in with their, you know, Armani suits and, and their Porsches at, at my hospital. All the orthopedic surgeons drive Porsches. It's like a, a boys club with Porsches and they talk about their boats and they come in and they know so much about medicine and, and you can meet these, powerful, rich men and just think, this, there's just no way, there's no way this person would ever come to, 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 to trust in the God of the Bible. There's just absolutely no way. Uh, people of different religions, I mean, just go down to Westfield and you'll see there's so many different religions that people follow. Uh, just this morning, I was down at the coffee shop around the corner, Kuru and Co. I met the guy who works there, uh, one of the guys employed there, and he was just telling me that he's Jewish. But if you go down to uh, Westfield and meet, the, you have a variety of different religions, even just from last week, you'll, you'll see even uh, Muslims you know, dressed in long uh, white robes with beards or, or people of Hindu religion, many different religions, and you can begin to think, You know, these people, they've got their own... I mean, there's just no way. There's just no way they'd ever come to trust in God. Hardened atheists. You know, there's a a plentiful share of them in my family. And you can even begin to be fearful of even beginning to talk about things of faith out of fear of maybe being ridiculed or laughed at. I mean, let alone thinking that this person might come to trust in God, it, it, it feels like there's just no way. And so we can be tempted to write people off, calculating the probability even in our minds of salvation. Oh yeah, this guy, it's probably like 000000001 percent chance I give him of becoming a Christian. We write people off and we think there's just no way God could save them. Or we even write ourselves off as being used by God to save other people. We can begin to think, you know what, maybe this whole mission thing, it's just not for me. You know, God could use other powerful, gifted speakers and people, you know, the Pipers, the Francis Chans of the world. Um, you know, the Emma Taylors of the world. Um, but for me, you know, there's just no way like God could use me. I mean, uh, one of the things you know about me is I'm um, kind of really passionate and it works great in this kind of setting, but one-on-one it can get really awkward. And one of the things I find like, um, I find with myself, person, my personal example is um, I can be passionate about things, but when someone I feel like they're attacking something that I'm passionate about, because I'm so passionate about it, I just get really worked up, and my hands start to tremble, and then suddenly I can't even like get the words out, and I just get awkward, and I feel like I'm I'm breathing on a third of a lung full of air, like this tiny little voice, so I keep retaking my breath. It's time to get my words out. I mean, I just think sometimes you can begin to question, you know, God could use these other people, but but not me. Like, and we write ourselves off. Well, when we write others off as too hard or when we write ourselves off as too weak to be used by God, we're missing this. We're missing this. His word. This word is what he uses to save. This word is where his power truly lies. And whenever his word goes out, it's power being unleashed. Well, this is what we're talking about this morning. Word of power. I got three points this morning, but one real driving hope for us uh, this morning, and that's that, that we would see our God saves using weak people in unlikely places by His Word of power. He uses weak people Weak, broken people in unlikely places, sometimes the most unlikely of places. But he does it by his word, by his word of powerful, power. This morning I really want to tackle that, that tendency we have to disbelieve that God is able to save certain people or win certain places for his kingdom. Well, one, a weak person. Well, the book of Jonah begins, as we've seen already, with just rank, rank disobedience. God calls Jonah to go to Assyria, that's modern Iraq, and in chapter 1, verse 3, it says that, that Jonah fled the presence of the Lord. He flees from Iraq and instead... Uh, as Dave so helpfully put it, goes on a Mediterranean cruise uh, to Spain. And the Lord sends this storm, this storm that comes down through and shakes this boat that he's on, and everything is responding. The sailors on board are responding. The captain on the ship responds. The ship itself responds, but Jonah is asleep. He's unresponsive. And so God uses a pagan ship's captain to come and speak to him. Who says to him, "Arise and call out to your God"? And Jonah is absolutely unrepentant. And so they sit down after trying to battle this storm, and they draw lots to find out who is responsible. And they draw lots, and the lot falls on Jonah. And Jonah is still unrepentant. He instructs them to throw him in the ocean, and he falls to the bottom. And the Lord sends a fish that swallows him up and the Lord spits him out back on land, back where he started in Israel and instructs him to go to Nineveh. And it would be easy to think, as we think about the story of Jonah, think that Jonah's disqualified himself. I mean, Jonah should no longer be of any use whatsoever to God. I mean, he was a prophet with a blessed ministry. He had an understanding of God's plan. He had a special relationship with God. God had called him to Nineveh and he runs away. And he still doesn't repent or call out to God, even on the ship when God sends the storm. He just says, you know what, guys, just kill me and fix your problem. Let it be over with. And like Dave said uh, before, I mean, it would have been the same for me. For me, if I was God, it would have been the absolute end of the story. And then Brendan killed Jonah. That's it, no more story. Or at least, I was thinking about it this week, at least the the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time and said, Jonah, I'm sending you back to Jerusalem with a toilet cleaning ministry. That can be your lot. But that's not what we see in the book of Jonah. Read with me from verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against the message that I tell you. The second time God speaks to Jonah, He doesn't give him a different message. He gives him the same message. The same message again. God says, I still want to use you, Jonah. Though you run from me, I still have a plan and a purpose for you, Jonah. I mean, how quickly do we turn away when people wrong against us? When people do things to spine us, when they sin against us, at least for me, I can say we quickly like turn away and say, you know what, no way. But not so with God. God is gracious and this is a story of amazing grace, the grace that God extends towards Jonah because God is the God who involves weak people in his plans and it still gets worse for Jonah. I mean, you would have thought after our passage, Jonah might have been uh, repentant of what's gone on or things he's done, but there's Nothing in Jonah to say that he repents of his sin against God at all. I mean, if anything, he gets worse. In chapter 4, we find out not only is Jonah uninterested in listening to God and running away from God, Jonah's a racist. I mean, he is a dead set, redneck racist. I mean, he goes on in in chapter four, and he says, "I knew you'd show pity on these guys, and that's why I was running from. I didn't want you to show mercy on these guys. That's why I didn't want to go." You see, a thousand years before Jesus came, racism was rife in Israel, absolutely rife. God had called out. Israel to be his precious people. He had promised, made these promises to Abraham thousands of years earlier that they would be his people. And he had given them special instructions, yes, to to have a special relationship with him, to forsake idols, to eat certain foods and live in a certain way. But his intention in calling out Israel wasn't that there'd be some high and mighty people. It was that there'd be a blessing to the nations that God would use them as a shining light to the nations to save them, to bless them. And that's what he says to Abraham when he meets him, when God meets him and promises, makes these promises to him, sorry, in Genesis chapter 12. God says, I'm going to make you, Abraham, into a great nation and through you, Abraham, the nations will be blessed. But yet over the years, Israel had misunderstood and they'd become proud and they'd become self-centered And they'd become racist towards outsiders, towards Gentiles, even commonly describing Gentiles as dogs. And so Jonah is no different. He's a racist and he doesn't understand God's plans. And he has this massive pity party in chapter 4. He goes on and on and on. Oh God, you saved them. So you just might as well kill me, kill me and my life. I can't bear the thought of you saving these people. It's like an unrepentant 12-year-old me. Massive, self-centered pity party. But God is teaching us something in His sovereign choice of Jonah, isn't He? He's not holding up Jonah as an example for us. He's not holding up Jonah as the way in which we should act by no means whatsoever. But He's demonstrating His delight in using weak people. His delight to use people that don't have it all together. You know, we can so easily begin to believe the lie that God only uses people that have it all together. The most gifted preachers or speakers, you know, the wisest of counsellors, those with the best marriages, God uses those folks, but he wouldn't use me. Those with the most obedient children, the best parents, God uses those, but he wouldn't use me. The best looking I mean, clearly, if you pay any attention to the pastoral team, that's clearly not the case for us. Um, I speak for myself, at least. Um, The most successful, those that have succeeded in life, surely God uses those people, but He wouldn't use me. Friends, that's exactly what the world says. The message of the world is God helps those who help themselves. The message of the Bible is God helps those who can't help themselves. Hear these words from Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you, how was he with them? In weakness. And I was with you in fear. And I was with you in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul says, I came in weakness. Why? Why? that you might not trust in me, but you might trust in God. You know, we think leaders, we think they must be strong, they must have it all together, but not so with Paul. Paul says when he thinks of leaders, when he thinks of his example, he thinks weakness to demonstrate the strength of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 6-7, to Paul writes, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts, to give the light, of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure, that's this gospel, in jars of clay. In jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. God has placed His message in weak plain, everyday, unimpressive vessels. Why? So that people would focus on the treasure and not on the vessel in which it comes. God wants people to focus on His word, that message of the gospel, and not on us. So He places His word, He entrusts His word to weak people like you and me. You know, just this week I was uh, chatting to someone who was considering getting more involved in leading at church and they were sharing with me um, and saying, you know what, I just think I'm not the right person for this. Like, you know, I don't have the best marriage and, you know, I've got so many struggles of my own and things that I'm working through and so I just feel like, you know, maybe I'm the wrong person for this. And I was just encouraging uh, this person, just saying, you know what, I think it's because you see that that I think you're exactly the right type of person. One, that the fact that you can see your weaknesses says that God is working in you with the gift of humility. But secondly, God delights to use weak people. For when we're weak, His strength in us, His power manifesting in us is most clear. I'm sure there's many here like me who at times you know, doubt God's desire to use you in mission because you have fears, things that you're afraid of, things that you're afraid of like what people might say about you. Because of your doubts, your doubts in your faith, your doubts that you wrestle with, things that you're trying to come to terms with, with what it means to be a child of God and to follow Jesus because of your difficulty with words, because sometimes you don't have all the words, you find it hard to put them together and you feel awkward at times with people, because of your lack of Bible knowledge, because you feel like you, you don't really know the Scriptures that well and so you, you, you question whether God could use you, because of your bad memory even, because you you, you forget people's names or faces and you think, I'm just going to make an embarrassment of myself, and because of anxieties and Fatigued because you feel overworked and overwhelmed, you begin to think that maybe God wouldn't want to use you or couldn't use you. I just want to encourage us this morning, if that is you, you are exactly the type of person God longs to use in his mission. You are exactly the type of person that God loves to use. Because it's not about you. It's about his word and the power in his word. If he could work through Jonah, he can can work through you, through me as well. Well, God was able to use a weak person like Jonah because it was never about Jonah. It was about his word of power at work through him. That's point one. A weak person. Point two, an unlikely place. Do you sometimes find yourself questioning, really questioning whether God could really ever bring revival to this city? Now, when you sit back and think about it, this city, the wealth, the way in which people have so many possessions and live these good lives, the health, People enjoy life, enjoy traveling and enjoying sights and eating out and fine dining. The comfort, the seeming happiness that people have, their education. And you begin to think and call to mind passages of scripture like what Jesus says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. I mean, are you like me? Do you begin to sometimes question whether God could really bring a a massive revival into this city and begin to think to yourself, "Oh yeah, maybe, but it it seems too hard. Too hard for God. Would He really do that here in this city? Well, I believe God wants us to see that Nineveh was an extremely unlikely place for revival. Extremely unlikely. First of all, Nineveh was way outside God's people. You know, Nearly the whole of the Old Testament is directed to God's work in the land of Israel amongst his people. Throughout history, he sends his prophets nearly exclusively to his own people. And Nineveh in Assyria is 900 kilometers away from Israel. It's far, it's way out. It seems completely of left field, completely off the radar for God's people. You know, not only that, Nineveh was one of the largest and most powerful cities, if not the largest and most powerful city in the world at that time. Uh, in 2 Kings chapter 12 where we learn that Jonah lived in the reign of King Jeroboam II which is in the 8th century BC from uh, 781 to 746 BC Israel was a small and insignificant nation in the world, on the world map but Nineveh, Assyria was the superpower in the ancient world and Nineveh was the capital of this superpower. Eventually, in fact, uh, we find out in Scripture that in 722 BC, King Shalmaneser invades and destroys the northern kingdom of Israel. It is a massive superpower. It's kind of equivalent to say Jonah being from like a tiny city like, I don't know, like Suva in Fiji or something like that like something tiny on the map, this small little prophet rocking up in Sydney, and you'd have to think, like, you've got to be joking. Like, this guy from this backward little town here in this big city, like, who would listen? Nineveh was one of the most largest and powerful cities in the world. But not only that, Nineveh also was pagan and was, in fact, the center of worship for another god. It's not like the people in Nineveh just you know, just had no religion and they were waiting for someone to come and preach them. No, they had their own religion. They worshipped the god Ishtar, who was the god of fertility, the god of love, the god of sex, and the god of war. And they worshipped Ishtar. And so the people of Nineveh were known for sexual immorality, were known for corruption, and were known for violence. I mean, can you imagine the scene? A single man from a small, backward city coming to the capital of the known world, a city that is powerful, a city that is massive, a city unrivaled in the world, bringing a foreign message of a foreign god to bear upon an immoral, corrupt and violent, massive superpower. I mean, talk about unlikely situation. Talk about an unlikely scene. Why don't you read with me verse 4 of chapter 3. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, going a day's journey into the city. And he called out, Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Jonah walks into this great city preaching. And you know what, guys? His heart is probably not even in it. You know, Jonah doesn't want to be there. He's just scared of going back in a fish again. He's there. He's not repentant. He's in the city. His heart's not even interested, not at all in it. And he's giving this seemingly crazy message that God in 40 days is going to destroy this massive city. I mean, there's just no way. If you were there, you would have just thought, like, there's just no way this could work. Come on, Jonah, who's going to destroy us? We're the greatest city on earth. But read with me, carefully read with me, verse 3. Jonah arose and went to to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Actually, in Hebrew, and you might see it footnoted in your Bible, actually, it literally says, Nineveh was a great city to God. Nineveh was a great city to God. And this is key. Jonah was not interested. But God loved this city. This city was precious to God. And so God, filled with compassion for this corrupt, wayward city, this city in which immorality and destruction was rife, sent this weak, rebellious prophet to bring his word. Filled with compassion for Nineveh, God was determined to save. You know, I think in a city like ours, we can begin to think that this is the most unlikely place for revival, can't we? I mean, we feel almost that we're on the wrong end of a wave of cultural change here in this city. I mean, homosexuality and gay marriage, I mean, in the public debate, it seems like it's, you know, it's it's almost a foregone conclusion. The public opinion seems to say, well, of course, this is a right thing. I mean, sexual immorality, premarital sex. I mean, people don't even really question that anymore. That's that's just a given. I mean, it's almost odd to live any way differently. Scripture in schools and the and the, and the push for ethics classes rather than Scripture in schools. I mean, there seems to be this cultural shift where people are moving further and further away and becoming more and more distant from the church or any understanding of things to do with, with our faith. An increasingly vocal atheism that says, this. you know, you believe in this, you put your faith in this, you're an idiot. I mean, why would you put all your trust in an ancient book? I mean, an increasingly vocal, atheism, an increasingly pluralistic world that we live in. You go to Westfield, you know, last week we met a Buddhist person, a Sikh person, Hindu, Muslim, Mormon, Baha'i, atheist, Catholic, Jewish, New Age spiritualist. And so we begin to think people are wealthy, people are busy, people are hard-hearted, and so they're disinterested, like there's no point, surely. There's just no way that God could do a massive revival and bring thousands and thousands and thousands, millions even of people to faith in Christ in this city. It just seems so unlikely. It seems so impossible, but God loves this city and God is on the move in this city. And Sydney, friends, is a city great to God. It is a city great to him. You know, last week, uh, we went out and walk up and I was with, uh, Emma Kulinich from, from church and, uh, we went out, and it's always hard because, like, you just feel so nervous, and like, oh, this is. Every time I do it, it's like this is a bad idea. And um, <laughs> and then and we talked to the first person we talked to, and said, oh, would you like to do a spirituality survey? And they said, no, I definitely would not like to do a spirituality survey. And you think I knew it; it's a bad idea. We shouldn't <laughs> be doing this. And then the next, per, uh, we're like, you know, praying, like God, you know, who should we talk to? And we walked up to this couple sitting there, and, and uh, lo and behold, they're Indonesian. And I get talking to them, and she's a Catholic. He grew up in a Pentecostal church that I'd been kind of involved with when I was living in Indonesia, so I knew all about it. And we get chatting, that basically they're here, they're disconnected, and they hadn't been involved with the church and um, we just had this like a great connection through my past involvement and we're talking about our church and how there's kids ministries and things and they're really interested and, and just encouraging, hey look, you know, you know, you're always welcome to become a part and it just seemed like this real divine appointment and then we left them and we walked this other lady sitting there with a pram and start chatting and it turns out that um, she has been over here two years she's from shanghai her husband's cantonese but he's from a christian background and so grew up in church but uh, it seems hasn't been involved with church since she apparently has all these christian friends who have recently given her a bible and been trying to get her along to church and she's been going to church up in Strathfield but um, feels like it's too far and is really interested in what we're doing in in our church and wondering if she can bring her kid along to our church and whether or not there'd be kids work and things involved for her there and it's like this amazing divine appointment again because it seems so clearly that God is already working in her life with all these Christians already around her clearly trying to reach out to her and we just walk in just at the right time you know, God is on the move. God is working in our city because Sydney is a city great to God. God moves in Nineveh, the most unlikely of places, by the power of His word. And God continues to move in this city as well. That's point two, an unlikely place. And last point, point three, a powerful word. You know, Jonah the prophet who doesn't even want to preach does. And what's the result? The result is repentance. Read with me verse 5. This is Jonah's worst fear coming true. And the people of God, uh, the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that the people believed Jonah. No, it doesn't say that. What they believe is they believe God. They believe in his word. They believe the message is from God and so they repent. They put on sackcloth. See, sackcloth in the East and still even to this day is a sign of mourning. Sackcloth is or was made from goat's hair. And so usually it was a black cloth that represented being in mourning. And you see in some traditions, people still to this day wear black when they mourn. And so people just begin en masse putting on black cloth and crying out in repentance and turning to God. I mean, imagine, I mean, imagine the scene here in Sydney if something like this happened. You know, you go to the bank and they're all in black. You know, you walk down the street and like everyone's all in black. You know, you, you go to work and everyone's in black. The shop attendant's in black. Everyone in the streets is in black. I mean, can you imagine the scene of all these people just just turning to God? But it doesn't just stay there. It keeps going. Read with me verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth and sat in ashes. Literally the word there reached, it says the word struck the king of Nineveh. The word struck struck the king of Nineveh. That word is a word for a powerful, a violent strike, often used with someone striking someone with a sword. The word struck this king, this powerful ruler, probably the most powerful man in physical terms in the world at that point. And there's an immediate response. He comes down from his throne. He takes his clothes off. He puts on this black sackcloth and he sits in the fireplace and rubs ashes on his face and mourns. I mean, it's an amazing scene. But it wasn't that the king was impressed with Jonah. You know, in this chapter, Jonah barely even gets a mention. He's mentioned twice. Because it's not about Jonah The king was not impressed with Jonah, but it was the word of power. The word comes, it strikes him like lightning strikes, and he repents. Well, Let's keep reading. Verse 7 through 9. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. You see, the city is already in mourning and repentance and even as this groundswell of God's word going out and repentance coming reaches the king and the king repents, he issues this decree that is that everything in the city, everything, including people and animals, is to repent, is to fast, is to mourn. You imagine people in sackcloth putting... putting Sackcloth on all their animals. You know, putting it on cats and putting on chickens and putting on everyone. Everything has been covered in sackcloth and is mourning and is crying out to God. I mean, imagine that sort of repentance happening here in Sydney. Imagine not even being able to find a single person who hasn't turned to God. You know, chatting to your neighbor. Yeah, oh yeah, man, I'm just crying out to God, asking Him, you know, to relent. I'm, t- I'm repenting to Him. You know, you go to your boss at work. Oh yeah, I'm repenting. Everyone, everyone you mean, it almost drive you nuts, wouldn't it? Like, everyone is turning back to God. I mean, the king believes the Word so much. He believes it so much. He's not even sure it will work. He's not even sure that it will be successful. He believes with such certainty that God is going to bring this disaster upon him that he says, it's almost like, like, let's just try this and see if it works to help us, save us from what is to come. Who knows? But the king is unsure because he doesn't know the God of the Bible. Read with me, verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them and He did not do it. God sees what they've done, how they've turned back to Him, how they've repented and He relents of the great disaster. Friends, this is exactly how God has dealt with us. You know, as we look at Jonah and we see this man with this incredible hard heart, we need to see ourselves running away from God. You see, we were on that boat in the midst of the storm, a storm of our own making, fleeing from his presence, trying to rule our own lives in our own way. Thank you very much. Our backs turned on Him, living in rebellion, not interested in being faithful to Him. But God Himself comes and joins us on our boat. And God Himself joining us on our boat, He willfully has Himself thrown overboard for us thrown overboard to calm the storm of God's wrath and anger that rages against us. You see, God, though we had turned our back on Him, didn't turn His back on us. He sends His very own Son who comes and lives a perfect life and hangs on that tree, taking the full weight of our sin. That storm of God is poured out upon Him as He cries in agony, bearing in full on that cross. And as Jesus Christ plunges to the depth of the sea, buried in a tomb for three days, and raised to life on the third day. So he conquers death and our sin. So he stands victorious, having paid our price in full, offers us life, offers us freedom from the storm, offers us sailing peacefully on peaceful seas with God, if only we trust him saved from eternal death. You know, some people say, and I hear them say, you know, sure, Brennan, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I believe He is the King and He rose from the dead, but I live how I please. Well, true trust requires action. He wants us to trust Him with how we live. He wants us to Trust Him. And just like those in Nineveh, action is required. He wants us to cry out, just like they did in Nineveh, passionately to Him. Tell Him we're sorry. Tell Him how we want to live differently. Tell Him you trust in Jesus. And friends, this morning, if you're sitting here and you've never done that before. You've never cried out to the Lord for salvation. If You've never cried out and turned to Him just like the people in Nineveh did. Unlike the people in Nineveh, unlike the king of Nineveh, you can have confidence in how God will respond. You can have confidence in what His response will be because He sent His Son for you because he bore the wrath completely on that cross. Well, the word of God through a weak man in an unlikely place led to radical change. But friends, the truth is, we have an even greater word than Jonah. You know, I don't know if any of you are familiar with uh, Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. He says, Truly I say to you that among those born of women... There has arisen no one greater, that is, in context, as a prophet than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater as a prophet than he. Uh, Why is the least, I mean, even the weakest of Christians greater as a prophet then John John Jesus says was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets he was the greatest one who ever lived he was even greater than Jonah and Jesus says you know what the least person in my kingdom is a greater prophet than John I mean how is that possible how could we be greater as a prophet than John and the answer is because we have an even greater message we have an even greater word. John the Baptist, his word as the greatest prophet of the Old Testament was, guys, get ready. Someone is coming. That was his message. Turn back to God. Guys, there's someone coming. There's someone coming who's going to save you. And our message is that someone is here. And his name is Jesus. We have the greatest word the world has ever heard. And yet, even greater than that, we not only have a greater word, but we have God himself with us. You know, I was reading these words from Jeremiah 31:33 just this week. And in this, uh, Jeremiah says he, he prophesies, and this is for us, friends. He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. You know, just sitting here this morning, you know, if you're following Jesus, you know, even as I preach on Jonah, you know, if you're a Christian, there's something in you that just as you hear his word, you just it resonates with you and you and you and you want to be obedient to it even though you fail, you want that. You want to be more faithful and bold to God, and that is this prophecy come true for you that God has written his word in your heart and on your mind. He's put it in you. But more than that, he says, he goes on, and I love this, verse 34, he says, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, and I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. He says this coming a day when you won't have to say to your friend, you know what, know the Lord, this is what he's like, because you'll know him yourself. You will have this intimate relationship with, With God, where you're able to commune with Him and know Him and enjoy Him, and where He's with you, and where His Word is written on your heart and friends. This day is now. God is with us, He is in us, He is for us. We have a Word of power. Well, in closing, how should we respond? Well, I think the first thing is, or first way we respond is just simply with thankfulness. Because the first evidence of the word's power is the word's power in me. And just, it's so quick, I'm so quick to forget my own story that that even though I grew up in a Christian family, I was this man that was just so caught up with myself, living for myself and anxious about what other people thought of me and yet God saved me. And he did it through the power of his word. I mean, I've got every reason to be thankful to him for for what he's done in my own life. And so I think when we consider the word of power, we think the word of power in us causing us to trust in God and, and we should be thankful. And secondly, it's a response of trust. I think... In response to this word, we never give up on people. We always trust God's power to save, whether it be family or friends or colleagues or spouses or neighbours. As the years go on and unrepentance seems to continue, we, we never put people in the too hard basket, but we continue to trust. We continue to trust in this power and we continue to pray and we continue to persevere and we continue to lift them before the Lord and ask Him to move and we continue to ask the Lord to change us that we might be a powerful witness in their lives. We trust. And finally, and I think this one speaks loudest to me, we we step out in faith to talk about Jesus. We respond with boldness. We press on in learning more about Him and His Word. We press on in talking about Him with everyone as we meet them and know them. We press on in inviting people into this community. And you know, for me, I, I need to keep asking the Lord for this. You know, even tonight in God versus the world. You know, and when you think about, you know, all the questions people could potentially ask and you always Your mind goes to the most difficult ones you think oh lord like am i just going to make a mess of this and like am i going to have the things to say and you know, we just need to trust in the power of this and not in the power of this oh, i've got no power the power is in his word and so we respond by being bold you know just by way of closing uh, on this line the power of the word i was just encourage this week reflecting on the story of Charles Haddon Spurgeon about how he became a Christian, how he was saved in his testimony. You know, for those who don't know, uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon is the, known as the Prince of Preachers, one of the greatest, most powerful, influential preachers uh, in history, uh, if not ever. And his story goes like this. He was a, a young boy... Um, looking for God, searching for God, but still with a heart hardened to the gospel. And it was a winter's night and he came along to a small, primitive, Methodist church. And the man who was speaking that night wasn't the usual preacher. It was a man, a member of the congregation who had no education, a man who could barely read or write. And he gave a simple message and the message was from Isaiah 45:22, Look unto me and you will be saved. And his message went like this. He said, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now look and don't take a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just, look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. I, many of ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. I love it. It's a weak, uneducated man, but with a powerful word. You know, friends, Charles Haddon Spurgeon sitting there that morning with this simple message, heard that word and was cut to the heart and led to a radical change, a life transformed that continues to impact the world today. such power, isn't there, in the word of God? As we step out in faith with this word, I don't know, I'm just excited to think about what God will do as his word goes out in and through this church, in this community. You know, in the book of Jonah, we see a weak man being used by God in an unlikely place. But the word of God is so powerful that there is no obstacle that can stop it from achieving its purpose and the greatest revival in all of history breaks out. Friends, God truly saves using weak people in unlikely places by the power of his word. Let's pray that he would do an amazing work here in this city as we close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning, a word that is a word of power, a word powerful to save even the most unlikely of people in the most unlikely of places. Lord, this morning we pray and we pray for this city. And we ask that you'd use us, Lord. Lord, we have many weaknesses and many failings, many areas of our lives where we fail to trust you and be bold for your gospel, Lord. And yet we take comfort in knowing that you are the God who delights to use weak people for your glory because your power is manifest in Weakness. So, Lord, send your word forth in and through us, Lord, we pray. And may we see a rich harvest for your glory and your glory alone. And praise in Jesus' name. Amen.